welcome to this week's episode of the Compass Equip podcast. I'm not Pastor Hayden, but I'm Pastor Evan. And, and I'm he- not Pastor Evan, and I'm Pastor Hayden. <laughs> and here at Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ. And everything that we do here at Compass, including this podcast, is to fulfill that mission of reaching, teaching, and training. And we have some fun doing it. We do. I'm sipping a uh, latte right now. You know, I just announced the podcast this Sunday and some people for the first time. This, this, this is, is it. This is the first experience. Welcome. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> well, Pastor Hayden, you just got, uh, got done preaching uh, another sermon in your series, People and Promises, out of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, titled Faith in His Promises. And it's out of Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 5, in the first part of 6. And so let me read that to you right now. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. All right, Pastor Aiden, your your main focus of your sermon was that our life in Christ is the outworking of God's deliverance amidst our failures, which should move our response to God with uh, with ultimate faith in his plan. And you had three points uh, for this sermon. But before I give those points, um, we kind of mentioned this to the life group leaders in our other podcast. We wanted to, I wanted to ask you the same question. How did you get, well, you, you covered the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, the book of Ruth, but the first half of First Samuel. How did you get that from the names of the genealogy? Yes, what we want to do is put you guys in the sandals of first century uh, Israel. And what that means is when the uh, Apostle Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he put these names down, which uh, in the minds of the first century readers are going to bring back historical events and historical situations that align with these people's lives. Like Rahab, everyone knew, they knew Rahab was a prostitute. She lived in the walls of uh, Jericho during the time of Joshua. And so... We see through the timeline or through the genealogy a timeline of events that if we understand and, and we look at, uh, it's going to help us have an appreciation for the text, for the uh, genealogy, and to show us exactly what Matthew wants us to understand about these names, that they were leading to Christ, that there were people involved in this genealogy that shouldn't have been there originally, that God had placed in there divinely uh, for his good purposes like Rahab like Ruth, I mean, these people who uh, the world would not want in the genealogy, but that God had placed them in there uh, to show his uh, steadfastness, his love, uh, and his uh, promise-keeping, as well as uh, allowing the the destitute, the uh, Gentiles, uh, and those kinds of people into his promises. And so understanding the historical significance of these names, I think, is going to help us go through the book of Matthew over the next uh, couple years. All right. Well, Pastor Hayden, your first point, as we kind of, and we do this so you can be prepared to uh, go to life groups, equipped so that you can be able to participate in them well and to be equipped for the rest of the week. So uh, point number one was expect God to honor your faith. And you talked about the example of Joshua and the example of Rahab, but what does that boil down to? And how does it even apply to us as Christians today when this is Joshua and Rahab? Well, Joshua was a was an Israelite in the Old Testament, and Rahab was a, a pagan in the Old Testament uh, times. How does that have to apply to us today? Well, we have faith in something specific. That is God's plan, God's will. And so when we're walking 
trusting God's faith and God's will. He's going to honor that faith and that trust in his promises that he's given us. And he's going to honor that in, in the life of Rahab, how it was Rahab turning away from her people, turning away from her idols, turning away from her checkered past, and going after God. I mean, and God honors that by what? By putting her into the line and the, uh, the genealogy of Christ. I just think that that's a principle that we should take and say, how does that apply to you and I? Simply, that God has a will, and if we walk in it, he promises to reward those who seek him. Uh, to as we walk in faith, it pleases him, and he honors that. And we should seek to do that. We should seek to honor God. We should seek to walk in faith, and we can expect God to honor that uh, and reward us according to his will, according to his good pleasures. All right. Well, your second point was for us to anticipate consequences when we forget God. And your example was the book of Judges and how the Israelites over and over and over and over, about 12 times actually, mm-hmm. um, in a poetic manner, they forgot God 12 different times and they worshiped other gods. God you know, punished them. They, they cried out to God for deliverance and God delivered them, but then they would just do it over and over again, being DYI Christians. And so for us as Christians, how does it look like for us to face consequences when we forget God? When, as Romans 8 talks about, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So what are the consequences that we're talking about? Yeah, I think the most simple way to look at this is from the lens of a social uh, aspect of consequences of sinful actions. Uh, Because we do not live in a blessings and curses covenant like Israel did, right? Uh, God said, if people will bless you, I will bless them. If they curse you, I will curse them. And God had the same promise with Israel that if you will obey me, and listen to my covenants, I will bless you, but if you will not, I will curse you. And so there was a blessings, curses covenant that was wrapped up in the uh, the old covenant, but in the new covenant, that isn't the case. However, you still should expect and anticipate consequences when you forget God because God's plan and God's commands for us lead to fruitfulness, faithfulness, holiness, right? Not in and of themselves, but through the Holy Spirit, right? They produce holiness in us. And when we... Uh, reject those or when we uh when we uh, what's the better word disobey them i guess is a better way to say that uh there are real consequences right uh uh, husbands when you don't love your wives although god says you must do that what happens in your marriage when you don't love your wife right okay uh wives when you don't follow the leadership of your husband what does your marriage look like not great uh when you don't discipline your kiddos for years growing up, when the Bible says that you have to discipline your kids so that they will know how to walk and that you don't, and you should raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And you don't, what if you don't do those things? You don't discipline them. You don't teach them about the Lord. There's consequences for that, right? I mean, there's legitimate consequences when we forget God in the practical areas of our life. And so you can at least rest to say, okay, of course, there's no condemnation for me in Christ, but there are still consequences when I forget God, even in the practical uh, social consequences of my life. And before we dive in further, we can, we can address the aspect of what about your, for judges, it was a nation. And so there are consequences that we feel or even maybe face alongside a nation that is forgetting God. So what does that, I guess, look like as you know, we experience partially in a way the consequences of a nation that is forgetting God. Right, and that's that's the harder question that I think has some good answers tied into it is, okay, uh, we're Christians, no, no condemnation for us from God, uh, but we do live in a country that has forgotten God, 
right? And I think, okay, are we saying that God will, like he did in Israel, give a famine? Maybe, maybe not. But you don't even have to go that far to see the judgment of God on a nation who's forgotten them uh, because what have we done? We've taken gender and we've made it fluid. When God said, I have created them both male and female, right? Okay, there's your biblical principle. What we have done is taken away that binary teaching of male, female, and we have said, nah, you can be what you want. There's more than that. And guess what? We're reaping the social consequences of that decision to forget God's design. And so it's even easy. Don't even go. You don't even have to go to the theological blessings and curses of the old covenant into the new covenant. You can just continually from a national level see, okay, listen, when you forget God and his, uh, his word and you don't apply it and you don't live it out, there are still consequences even at a national level, a worldwide level. And so that's the aspect of kind of a social, um, or corporate, corporate consequence. But even individuals as Christians, we will face consequences when we do for, forget God. I mean, we already brought up one when we forget to, as husbands, love our wives, and wives for, forget to you know submit and follow your husband and for us to teach our children. Um, but even as a, you know, for me as a pastor, if I forget God and decide to pursue a sin that disqualifies, disqualifies me as a pastor, do I lose my salvation? No, but I do face the consequences of that action, and God's going to use that, and God uses consequences for the Christian to drive them to repentance, to uh, discipline us, to get us back on track to the will right. of God. And we used the example earlier of drunk driving. Okay, you're drunk, drive, you're drunk driving, you hit someone, you kill them. Okay, you're a Christian, you're not losing your salvation, but you still, because you disobeyed and you forgot God's uh, commands, don't be in drunkenness, right? You forgot the law that God has placed in the land that says no drunk driving. And yet you did all those things anyway. There are going to be consequences. So anticipate consequences when you're living outside of uh, the purview. I mean, not the purview of God because you never will live outside that, but outside of the will and the commands of God. And see that as a way that God is driving you back to him and so you can still be a faithful Christian while in prison facing the you know facing the consequences of your actions. I can be a faithful Christian even if I disqualify myself as a pastor. Right. So with that all being said, your final point was trust God to provide for His plans and use the example of uh, Boaz and Ruth and also as a for God providing King David after Israel rejected him, uh, rejected God as their king, um, but. What is the simple truth in point number three that we need to make sure that we have ready to apply in our lives when we meet for life groups this week? It's the simple fact that God provides for his plans, right? God has never promised to provide for your plans. It's always his plans. Now, hopefully, uh, your plans are his plans because you've seen his plans and you're like, listen, I'm making no plans. I'm just going to do God's plans. Uh, because the scripture makes it clear. There's three right here. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, not your purposes. God promises to work for the good of those who love him and are following his purposes, not their own, not the DIY Christians. Philippians 4, 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory, not according to your do-it-yourself plans, not according to your riches, his riches and his glory, his plan. And then finally, Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you to will, that is to bring about and to work out 
for his good pleasure, not for yours, but for his. And I, I don't want to separate this so much to say like, oh, no pleasure in God. He just wants me to do what he wants him to do. The joy of salvation in Christ is God changes my affections and changes my desires to be his affections and his desires. So all of these things should be full of abundant joy and pleasure in God because he's changed these things and made those passions your passions. And I don't ever want to make this think that, oh man, God's so, he's just a curmudgeon because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to make me happy. No, come on. You should be happy walking in the will of God if you're a Christian because he has changed your affections. Which leads me to one final question to kind of help us have insight into the text so that we can not only be prepared for life group, but more importantly to actually apply it in our lives is finding freedom of running after God and running in into his will. It's the practical aspect of things. So could you even reemphasize uh, about th- that point you made in your sermon about f- you know feeling free to run into the, finding freedom in, in running after God and his will? Yeah, there's nothing more terrifying than trying to figure it out on your own and, and trying to make your own plans and having to support your family and, and not make mistakes that are going to end up in utter failure. The good news is, in God's will, it won't. Like, that's, and that's what I'm saying. And, and what I'm not saying is this. Don't try to figure out whatever you're doing and say, well, I'm going to say that this is God's will. Don't say that. You can't do that. You've got to know that it's God's will. Well, how do I know God's will? Look at his word. Like, are you, gonna, are, are, for, are you trying to move to Canada uh, so that you can hit some cooler weather and get a better job? And, and be around cooler people? Well, none of that sounded like anything that God is doing, right? Nothing that God is, is being glorified in. God is doing nothing in that situation to receive honor and glory or produce anything. Now, can God? Sure he can. He's God. Uh, but instead, hey, you know, I'm we're moving to Canada because they're t- planning a Bible teaching church up in a very unreached par- portion of Canada where people do not love God. And uh, I may get a good job. I may get a worse job than I have right now. But I know disciples are going to be made up there and they need the gospel. And so I'm going to partner with my church to go to Canada and plan a church. Well, what, what can you rest assured in that situation? That God's going to honor that because it's his will to make disciples and to have Bible teaching churches. And is it, well, does it always have to be connected to the church? Well, in a sense, yes. And in a sense, no. In a sense, yes, because you're never separated from the local church because you are a body and a member of the church. So everything that you do in the will of God will somehow be connected to the body of believers. And so that even matters like where you work, how you work, what, what job are you doing, what industry are you in? You have to make sure that all those things would be pleasing to the Lord as you're working in them and as God is working in your life, you got to make sure all those things are in submission to uh, God. Because when they are, you can run in freedom. You can pursue them because you you love the Lord. Your your job is fruitful, and it's allowing you to be more faithful and fruitful and generous for the kingdom of God. All right. Well, this leads me to Pastor Hayden. The application question direction that you've given us is there a couple questions you want to highlight or a direction you want to uh, show us so that when we uh, Go to life groups. One, we've done the questions uh, rightly uh, mm-hmm. so that we can actually participate and be built up for this. Yeah, uh, we have four questions, but really you have eight, seven, roughly eight, seven, seven or eight. Uh, but they're easy questions. And what they're meant to do is is lead you in practical application. So they're not hard questions. They're just going to help you apply them and to give you real world uh, ways that you can take God's word 
and insert the principles into things that you're actually doing. So take time to answer all of them and prepare them in advance for your life group so you can help other people apply these to your life. So it should be super applicable. There, None of these are, are overly burdensome. I don't think any of these are going to take so much brain work that you couldn't figure them out once you just read the text and, and look at your life and, uh, and, yeah, and work through them to help you apply and uh, understand the text. All right, we need to go into the Daily Bible Reading Spotlight. And this is the first time you're listening to this. We spend time at all of our uh, Compass Equip podcasts to uh, go over and spotlight your daily Bible reading for the week. So Pastor Evan is going to take us through this week's Daily Bible Reading Spotlight. All right, well, Compass, you are now into the land of the prophets. We are going to be starting. We've actually started this week and will continue for several weeks in the book of Isaiah. And this is one that is very exciting, but at the same time very confusing, because Isaiah is shifting about which time period he's talking about quite quite a lot. So this is going to be helpful. I want to give you a background on what is going on in Isaiah, and a very helpful resource that actually, I'm actually just going to quote several times in this is the uh, Wearsby expository outline on the Old Testament. That's the Wearsby expository outline on the Old Testament. Helpful resource that kind of breaks it down super quick. So the name of Isaiah and actually is the author of Isaiah. And if you want to be you know, fancy at the next uh, gathering uh, that you ha- have with your church, when you say the word Isaiah, you're speaking ancient Hebrew and it means the salvation of Jehovah or the salvation of Yahweh. So when you're saying Isaiah, you're saying salvation of Jehovah. Like when you say Joshua, you say God saves. When you say Jesus, it's just a fancy way to say Joshua. But as the author of it, it's uh, Isaiah, again, his name meaning the salvation of Jehovah, is that salvation is one of the key ideas throughout the entire book of Isaiah. And so Isaiah was actually a very prominent person, and I'm taking this from the Wearsby Expository Outline. He's a very uh, prominent person, a leading family in Israel. And actually was in, had access, direct access to several uh, Jewish kings in Judah. He was uh, he was married and was a father of at least two sons, which God uses metaphorically. He had two real sons, but then God uses them as an example. And he, he began his reign roughly around 758 BC around King Uzziah. And then he preached until until tradition tells us that he was uh, sawn into two. He someone got a saw and cut him in half by the wicked king Manasseh. Manasty is Manasty. There you go. That is a throwback from a previous episode. And so that is who Isaiah is. He's a very faithful man. But there's a lot of background. And there's another resource I'll share, share next week that is going to be really helpful. That the the reason why the prophets are hard. Is imagine grabbing someone from 1950 that lived in you know Africa, had zero idea of what the United States is, and you drop them into the 2020 debates between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and you say, "Hey, try to figure this out." They're going to go, "What on earth are you talking about?" Because I don't know the context of what's been going on. That is one of the difficulties of the prophets is that they're speaking directly into the current events of Israel and what they're going through. And so maybe having first uh, and second Kings ready at hand to study and reread as you go through the prophets, because they're talking to Israel about the condemnation of the failure for them to, to keep the law. Yeah, and you may have already addressed it a little bit, but even the prophets are difficult because they're not part of the chronological books of the scripture. So you can't just read them as ongoing history. 
you can actually you have to insert the prophets in uh, Kings and Samuel and Chronicles and in Ezra and Nehemiah, because if you don't, you have no idea. These prophets are almost all speaking in those that time period. And if you're not careful, you're going to be, I don't even know when they're talking about these things. And then I want to find a, the which Bible chart is going to be helpful. There's going to be a chart of prophets of where they were located. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, for example, the map that Pastor Hayden showed of the judges, how helpful was that to see, oh, here's all the judges. They're practically judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the prophets. Having a map of where these prophets were, when they were speaking, and who they're speaking to is going to be so helpful because it's going to make reference to things that you're going to be like, I don't know what's going on. Well, that's why you need to study your Bible very, very well. But to help you out broadly, uh, the theme of Isaiah, and this again is coming from the Wearsby Expository Outline, is that Isaiah, you can almost divide it in two, uh, chapters 1 through 39 and also chapters 40 to 66. Um, and the first section is uh, talking about the impending doom of the Assyrian invasion of of not only the northern tribes of Israel, but also Judah. Now, Judah was not conquered by the Assyrians, but Assyria was. And so this is pre-invasion of the, Assyria. The northern kingdom was. That's what I meant, the northern yeah. kingdom. Yeah. But the Judah was invaded, but they, they were, were repelled yeah. by God, and he killed 185,000 of them. Until a couple hundred years later in Babylon. So Isaiah is talking about the first half of it is pre-invasion of the northern tribes, and then afterward is like post-invasion and also forecasting to come. And the second section is actually more of encouraging as they uh, for the captives going to Babylonian captivity. And so he starts to there's a lot of prophecy in Isaiah by Babylonian or Assyrian. Babylonian. Oh, okay, sorry. Because he's ahead. prophesying the Babylonian the future. The future. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So because Isaiah, and here's the fun fact in the fun scholarly realm, they call it the fifth gospel, because Isaiah is very Christocentric, which we'll get to in a second. But essentially, the main theme, one of the main things you're going to see through Isaiah, not not just the only, but one of the main ones, is that God is chastising Judah for their sins, but also encouraging them to be faithful, because he's, he's going to be faithful, essentially. So, giving some historical background, and this is going to be background-heavy compass, and and this is going to be really helpful as you read it, is that, remember, the nation is divided, as we kind of mentioned before, after the death of Solomon. Ten tribes went to the north of Israel, and two tribes stayed to the south of Israel. And so there's a new capital of Israel called Samaria, so you have to remember that because he's going to throw condemnation at Israel and Samaria, and the capital of Judah was Jerusalem, and he's going to talk about them. He mainly ministered in Jerusalem, but his messages are primarily talking to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms, but a lot of the beginning is going to be about the northern kingdoms. Um, And a simple outline, it's not really simple, but an outline's going to help you is, you know, first, the first 39 chapters is God, you know, rebuking Israel. He's going to be talking about how they're condemned in the first six chapters, and he's going to have prophecies of deliverance from between chapter 7 and 12, and that's the the birth of Emmanuel, something very familiar that Matthew quotes Isaiah, uh, the coming of a deliverer, uh, the, you know, the king of kings, um, and the future exile. And he's going to have a section that we're going to finish this week on uh, the judgment of the nations, the judgment of Babylon, uh, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, and uh, different lands, Egypt, the desert region, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, Tyre, and so on. And then these actually judgments and prophecies actually come true, especially Tyre is actually an interesting one. Um, and then we will begin to see... Um, the punishment of the uh, punishment and kingdom blessings that he's going to begin in chapters twenty four to twenty seven, 
there's a helpful outline in the Bible knowledge commentary that I used to kind of sort that out. But the, one of the last things I want to emphasize is that Christ is all over this book. And it is considered, you can almost say it's the first gospel uh, narrative because it just sees it over and over. Uh, for example, and again, this is taken from the Wearsby Expository Outline, is that we see his birth narrative. Uh, Matthew 123 quotes Isaiah 714 and also uses Isaiah 9.6. The ministry of John the Baptist, well, that was in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 6. Christ being anointed by the Spirit, that's Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. Uh, Christ is the servant, that is Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. That Israel is going to reject Christ, well, that's taken through through Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Um, the parallel, um, excuse, me, excuse me, the stone of stumbling, that's Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, and chapter 28, verse 16. In Christ's ministry to the Gentiles, uh, that's referenced in Luke chapter 2. That's in Isaiah 49, verse 6. And then Christ's suffering and death, that is the one of the most famous passages, Isaiah 52 to 53, verse 12. And again, his resurrection is even foretold in Isaiah 55, verse 3. And then lastly, the coming king, that's Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Um, and so you can tell that this book is going to be very Christocentric. Something that you're going to find difficult as you read Isaiah is just the imagery and having to read imagery. I mean, I'm just pulled up Isaiah 9. Uh, For the wickedness of the nation burns like a fire. And I said nation, but it doesn't say nation. But you have to understand he's talking about the nation here. Burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. They roll upward in a column of smoke. Well, is there any fire? Are there any briars and thorns being burned? Are there thickets of forest being burned up right now and rolling up in the in a column of smoke? No, none of that's actually happening. It's all imagery. And so you've got to read a lot of Isaiah as imagery explaining real things. And so if you can do that and take your time as you read it, it's going to help you realize there's a lot of imagery in Isaiah that's hard to understand, but it's always uh, pointing to a physical reality. In that sense, it's the the wickedness of the nation. And so one of the purposes, and that's actually really helpful, is that you got to see how you read this carefully. You can still be literal, um, grammatical, and historical in your interpretation of it, but you have to actually apply what he's using imagery. He's using imagery. Mm-hmm. So finally, one of the main purposes that you're going to see is God calling out and calling Israel to repent and thinking of their covenantal relationship, covenantal remembrance with God. God is going to judge the nation, but also eventually he's going to restore them back. And it's going to be through this suffering servant. And there's going to be full kingdom blessings to come. There's going to be a couple highlights uh, that we won't have the time to dive into, but one of the highlights is going to be Isaiah chapter 6. This is the the calling of Isaiah, the very one of the famous, famous passages. The name of God is holy, holy, holy. Um, that's where Isaiah enters the presence of the Lord and, and recognizes his fallenness, and he needs God's holiness to touch him in order for him to be holy. And God then asks, who will go out and tell the nations? And Isaiah says, go and choose me, send me. And other, another highlight this week is going to be Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. This is the, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and on the government should be upon his shoulders. And this is the fulfillment of what this child, this Isaiah chapter 7 child is going to look like, Emmanuel, born of the virgin. And so it's just a very helpful reminder of who Christ is going to look like and also who's going to look like again. Because the whole point to apply this book of Isaiah is when we read this, 
I want you to be encouraged by God's plan coming to fruition. When Matthew quotes Isaiah in Matthew 1, verses 22 to 23, he says, and this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken. He's going to say that over and over. The gospel writers, hey, this was the scriptures to be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled this to encourage the believer, to encourage the Christian. And so like the promises that God has given us as Christians, Revelation chapter 21, that there's going to be a new heavens, a new earth, and that he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For before the former things have passed away. Now that's something I look forward to as a believer. So use the book of Isaiah as God has fulfilled a lot of, not every aspect, because Israel still has to yet, yet, but he's fulfilled many aspects. We get to look forward to the full fulfillment of what we get to inherit as believers of Jesus Christ. And so use this to encourage you to continue to wait eagerly for your eternity with God and for those uh, and the saints who also repented and trusted in him. All right, Compass, we are finishing up with some important announcements. Number one, Compass Kids Choir an almighty Christmas, December 18th, registration is open for your kiddos to sign up to participate in this almighty Christmas performance. And the uh, deadline is? October 20th. October 20th. So make sure that uh, your kiddos get signed up. We'd like to have as many of those kiddos between four years and fifth grade in as possible. Rehearsals start October 2nd after the second service. So make sure you get those kiddos signed up for that. We can't wait for our Compass Kids Christmas Choir. Uh, Men, we have our fellowship on October 8th. That means your life group uh, leaders will get a hold of you and connect with you and plan a time uh, to go over the questions from the last teaching from Pastor Evan. I hope you guys have a good time, have some fun, fellowship, and uh, look over those questions together as you work to apply uh, that to your life. And then our women's breakfast on October the 22nd. I can't wait to have Candace Jacobson teaching from James 3. Woohoo! And we look forward to having all you gals together again here at the church. And so, guys, we're praying for you. We're looking forward to all that God is going to do here and through your life as you're walking uh, in Him. So we look forward to seeing you guys soon.